0: 3. of the plan. And wondered who had been clever enough to discover it. The proud frog, opening his mouth to say, It was I lost his hold, fell to the earth, and was dashed to pieces. From LA Fountain, an Indian custom. Look here, said a young fellow as he opened the door of the log house in Canada, where he and a friend were camping out. See what I have found dangling from a tree in the forest. And he held up for his friend's inspection a tiny pair of leather moccasins gaudily embroidered with colored beads. You must put those back where you found them, said his friend quickly. They are of no value, interrupted the other. There is a hole in the toe. I expect some Indian mother hung them there to get rid of them. No. No. They were hung there because the child who wore them is buried under that tree. And these moccasins are put there for its use in the next world, explained his friend. Oh. If that's the case, said the young fellow, I will go back at once, and replace the little shoes, for I would not hurt their feelings about their dead friends for anything, so the little shoes were once more hung on the bough of the big fir tree, mistaken as are the Red Indians' ideas of the next world, he is yet as careful as we are to honor the last resting place of his loved ones, S.C. The Boy Tramp, continued from page 15, chapter III. Mr. Turton lent me the newspaper in which he had read the account of the wreck of the seal, and upstairs, in the room which I shared with two other fellows, I sat down on my bed to master it. It appeared that the skipper of the vessel, with seven of the crew, had been landed by a British cargo steamer at Hobart Town, Tasmania. The westward, oh, had picked them up in a small boat about seven days out from Cape Town. According to the story of the seagull skipper Captain Wilkinson she had experienced extremely bad weather for some days, and, becoming almost unmanageable, had been run down by a large liner in the middle of a dark night at the height of the gale. Whether the liner was British or foreign, Captain Wilkinson could not state, but, in any case, she had continued on her way without attempting to stand by to save life. The seagull foundered in less than ten minutes. Captain Alton persisting in his refusal to leave in the first, and as Captain Wilkinson declared the only, boat which got away, he had done his utmost to stand by, in spite of the fury of the gale, but one day broke, and the storm to some degree abetted, there was no sign of either Captain Alton or the SEAL, that she had foundered with the remainder of the crew and her owner the skipper had not the slightest doubt, although he went as far as to admit, to the newspaper reporter, the possibility that the small boat in which he had escaped might have drifted some distance from the scene of the wreck in the darkness. My only gleam of hope was due to Mr. Bosenkit, although I felt inclined to discount this, because he was given to look at the brightest side of things, and often predicted fine weather just before a storm. Still, he urged, You do not know for certain that Captain Halton was drowned. I admit there is a great probability that you will never see him again, but, after all, it is quite within the bounds of possibility that the skippers both drifted away, and that the owner and the rest of the crew managed to leave the seal. Of course, he added, if I am right, you are pretty certain to hear something farther in a week or two. Accordingly I lived in the most acute suspense during the next few days, but the time passed without news of Captain Walton, and such faint hope as I had cherished faded entirely away. In the meantime it seemed evident that Mr. and Mrs. Turton had not shared it. I learned it from Augustus that his father had written to Mr. Windlesham asking that I might be removed from Ascot House as a bad bargain. Moreover, I began to observe a kind of resentfulness in Mr. Turton's demeanor, and especially in his wife's. It was rumored in the school that they were hard up, and hence the shorter supplies of meat and butter. But it was Augustus who first made me realize my new situation. I say, Everard," he said, when we were alone one day, I should not care to stand in your shoes, now Captain Alton is dead you cannot stay here, you know, well, I answered, who wants to stay, I am going to Sandhurst soon, I guess you are not, "Oh," he exclaimed, there is no one to pay for you, and Windlesham is mean enough to say he won't take you off our hands. The entrance of Mr. Bozenkitt put an end to Augustus's gloomy forecast of my future, and, as the assistant master seemed to be the best friend I had left, I asked his opinion on the subject. Of course, he said, taking my arm, it is a rather difficult position. If Captain Halton has left a will with a legacy to you, there need not be much difference, but Mr. Turton is of opinion that if this were the case, he would have heard from the solicitor. Mr. Turton is a good deal perplexed to know what to do with you, though we will hope for the best, in spite of everything, now, I was fifteen, and fairly tall and strong for my age, I could easily perceive the difficulties at which Mr. Bozenk ended, and that, if Captain Halton were actually dead, and had left me nothing in his will, there was only Aunt Marion to whom it was possible to look for help, and she had taken no notice of me since her wedding day. I was ignorant of her address in India, and felt that I should be little better off even if I knew it. So, after a few days' reflection, I determined to speak to Mr. Turton. Well, Everard, what is it now? He demanded, a little impatiently. As I entered his study, I want to know about the holidays. I answered, where am I to go? Just what I should like to be in a position to tell you, he exclaimed. At present I have been unable to discover the name and address of Captain Dalton's solicitor, but, when I go to London with the boys at the end of the term, I shall do my best to gain farther information, we will put off the discussion until my return, it was, however, impossible to keep the question of my future in the background, and no day passed without many speculations, numerous out of the way projects had one peculiarity in common they were all to end satisfactorily. Even if I were fated to endure certain trials and hardships, I felt perfectly confident in my ability to rise above them eventually. The first important difference which I experienced as a result of the loss of the seal occurred on the Saturday after this interview with Mr. Turton. It was the custom to go to Mrs. Turton after dinner on Saturday for our pocket money, my own allowance since Captain Dalton's departure having been a shilling a week. What do you want, Everard? Asked Mrs. Turton when my turn came, my shilling, please, I answered, but she ominously shook her head, I am afraid there will not be any more pocket money for you this term, she exclaimed and, suddenly understanding, I walked dejectedly away, before I had gone many yards my took my arm, I can lend you fourpence, old chap, he said, awful ass if you do, cried Augustus, who had an act of overhearing what was not intended for his ears, why am I an ass, demanded Smythe, because Everard will never pay you back, suppose I don't want him to pay me back, oh, well, said Augustus, of course, if he is beggar enough to take your money, I should have liked to kick Augustus as he walked away with a snigger, but at least he had made it impossible to take advantage of Smythe's offer, it was a new and painful experience to stay outside the confectioner's shop while the other fellows entered, and the matter was freely discussed in my presence by Smythe and the rest on our return. Indeed, justice compelled me to agree with Barton's opinion that, as Turton stood in commonly little chance of being paid for the current terms board and tuition, it was scarcely to be expected that he should feel inclined to provide me with additional pocket money. Chapter IV. The end of the term soon came, and on the last afternoon I stood listening while Smythe, Barton, and the rest of the fellows boasted of all the wonderful things they intended to do during the holidays. I should not care to stand in Everard's shoes, said Augustus, as likely as not he will have to go to the workhouse before he has done. He will see when my father comes back from London, before they all set out to the railway station the next morning. Mr. Bozenkitt took me apart for a last word of hope and encouragement. He was not to return to Ascot House after the holidays and for my part I felt extremely sorry to bid him goodbye, I feel confident Mr. Turton will do his best for you, he said, but you must try to make allowances if he seems a little put out, he is not by any means a rich man, and, of course, he had to pay Mr. Windlesham for the goodwill of the school, Mr. Turton will feel the loss of your bill, you understand that is to say, if Captain Dalton does not turn up again, if he had been rescued, I asked, "'Don't you think we should have heard news of him before now?' "'Well, in all probability we should,' said Mr. Bozenkitt. "'But strange things happen sometimes, you know, and, after all, "'I do not consider it impossible that he may be stranded somewhere, "'and prevented from communicating with his friends.' "'Still,' I answered, "'all the newspapers and Mr. Turton say he must be dead.' "'Anyhow,' he insisted, "'there is no positive proof.' and even at the worst his solicitor may be able to satisfy Mr. Turton about your future. Continued on page 26. The boy tramp. Continued from page 23. At last the other fellows went to the station with Mr. Turton and Mr. Bosenkit, leaving me to enjoy the company of Augustus and his mother, who did not make much of an attempt to disguise her disfavor. It may be imagined with what anxiety I awaited Mr. Turton's return from London. He arrived at Ascot House late the following evening, having passed one night away from home. Although he had a long talk with Mrs. Turton, he did not speak to me that evening, but an ominous note seemed to be struck when Augustus told me I was henceforth to breakfast alone in the schoolroom. So, to my great disgust, the following morning, whilst Augustus and Mr. and Mrs. Turton breakfasted in the dining room, a cup of milk and water, with five thick slices of bread and scrape, are brought to me on one of the desks, no bacon or egg, or relish of any kind, accompanied the meal. Presently the door opened again, and Mr. Turton entered with a troubled face. Well, Everard," he said, I succeeded in finding the address of Captain Halton's solicitor, and I had a long conversation with him. Does he think Captain Halton is dead? I exclaimed. I regret to say that he has no doubt about the fact, but, at the same time, The estate cannot be administered for some months yet. In any case that will make no difference to you. Captain Alton had not made a will, and everything he died possessed of will pass to his nearest relatives. Then then, what am I to do? I asked. The circumstances are extremely unfortunate, was the answer. For me it is a serious loss, and I confess it is difficult to know what to do for the best. I understand you have no relatives of any kind, only my Aunt Marion. Uh, That is the Mrs. Ruston who Mr. Windlesham mentioned. She is in India, I believe. Yes, I answered. But I do not know her address. I can no doubt find it out in an army list, he said. But from what Captain Dalton told Mr. Windlesham, I fear little is to be gained in that direction. From that day nothing was the same. And I soon began to realize that my presence in the house was regarded as a nuisance. All my meals were solitary. And I seldom had enough to eat, Everard, cried Mrs. Turton. Directly I had finished breakfast two mornings after the above conversation. All the servants are very busy this morning, so you must make your own bed. If she had told me to stand on my head, I should not have felt more surprised, don't you understand? She demanded. Yes, Mrs. Turton. Then why do you stand staring there? Please set about it at once. I went upstairs to the bedroom which I had occupied alone since the beginning of the holidays, and after staring at the bed for a few moments, I was about to strip off the clothes, when I heard a snigger at the door. Hello, Susan, cried Augustus, darting to the dressing table. I seized a hairbrush, and threw it at his head, and fortunately it hit him on the forehead, making an ugly cut. And, of course, he at once went to show Mr. Turton, who came upstairs a few minutes later, by which time my bed was made after a fashion what was your reason for attacking my son demanded mr turton well i answered rather sullenly i am afraid for i was growing somewhat desperate he should not be cheeky you will not leave this room until dinner time he said and your meal will consist of bread and water i spent a miserable morning staring out of the window onto the garden and the fields beyond without a book to pass the time My only comfort being the sight of Augustus with a strip of court plaster above his left eyebrow. At half past one a servant came to tell me to come down to dinner, alone in the schoolroom. I at first determined to refuse my food, until hunger conquered my resolution, and I ate it every scrap. Soon afterwards Mrs. Turton entered, but she said nothing about Augustus's injury. You must not spend your time in idleness. She exclaimed, there was not anything to do in my bedroom. I answered, the house is being cleaned, she said, and all the woodwork has to be washed, you may as well go down to the kitchen for a pail of hot water and begin with the wainscoting in the hall, I'm not a servant, I answered, honest work is no disgrace to anybody, she said, you must try to make yourself useful in every possible way, and be careful not to splash your jacket, raging inwardly at my task, I only hesitated a few moments, then, Going down to the kitchen, I asked the good-natured cook for a pail of water. I call it a shame, she muttered. Things were different in Mr. Windlesham's time. A shame I call it. Oh, it doesn't matter, I answered, feeling not a little embarrassed by her sympathy. She filled an iron pail at the boiler tap, and, as I stood waiting, my thoughts flew back to earlier days at Acacia Road, and to Jane and her energetic manner of smacking the oilcloth. But I suppose my ideas had developed since those times, and certainly I felt this morning that I was being subjected to the lowest humiliation. However, I carried up the pail, slopping the water on the stairs at every step, with a scrubbing brush in the other hand, and then I set to work. When once I had begun, I cannot pretend that I found the actual washing of the wainscot particularly distasteful, although it seemed rather hard, after I had done my best. That Mrs. Turton should upgrade me for soiling my clothes. It was perhaps a week later that the notion of running away definitely entered my mind. By that time, I had cleaned a considerable portion of the woodwork of the house, lime whitened a portion of an outside wall, filled several coal scuttles, and swept the yard. My clothes were naturally not at the best at the end of the turb, I had grown considerably since they were new, and now they were splashed with distemper and soiled with dirt. One Monday morning I noticed the absence of the boy who cleaned the boots and knives and forks, and remarked upon it to Augustus, You see, we shall not want him now, he answered, with one of his irritating sniggers, and I fully understood the significance of his words. I tried to do the turtons no injustice, reminding myself that, to begin with, they were far from rich, and that they had lost the forty pounds or more which should have been paid for the last term's board and schooling. Moreover, they had not known me for some years as the windle shams had done i was in their house requiring food and shelter and perhaps they could not reconcile their consciences to turning me out so they determined to make me useful in the only possible way already i had begun to wonder what would happen when smide and the other fellows came back after the holidays one thing i knew for certain and this was that augustus would not fail to tell them how i had spent the time since they left in fact he had more than once hinted at their interest in my proceedings. The dismissal of the boot boy made me more and more apprehensive that I should still continue to be degraded after the beginning of the term. While I felt humiliated by the conviction that, even in the present circumstances, Mr. and Mrs. Turton were keeping me only on sufferance. But this Monday morning brought me to a determination. I had finished breakfast, and was wondering what I should be set to do next. When Augustus opened the schoolroom door, Everard, he said, you are to clean my boots, clean them yourself, I retorted, I shall tell father, he exclaimed, tell your mother, too, if you like, I said, he went to tell them, and a few minutes later Mr. Turton entered the room, Everard, he said, I wish to speak to you, yes, sir, I answered, you understand, he continued, that I have no desire to say or do anything to hurt your feelings. I can quite sympathize with you, and I am grieved that this necessity has arisen, but the fact remains, I am not going to clean Augustus's boots, I answered, do you think work is disgraceful to you, he demanded, I am not going to clean Augustus's boots, I insisted, you compel me to take harsh measures, he said, I have no wish to take them, but I shall give orders that you have no food until you obey me, you have to work for your living. I certainly cannot afford to keep you in idleness. You will go to your bedroom and stay there until you clean the boots and bring them to my study. Looking back, I am never able to forgive myself for surrendering. Yet I did surrender, although not at once. I passed Mr. Turton at the door and walked slowly upstairs, where I shut myself in the bedroom. Then and there I finally made up my mind. Without any definite scheme, when I succeeded in reaching my destination, I determined to go to London. I did not possess a penny of money, but I had my silver watch and chain, which surely it must possible to sell. The hundred miles walk caused me not the least alarm. I was strong and well. Although I had grown thinner during the holidays, the weather was warm, and I reckoned on reaching my destination in about a week. As to what I should do on my arrival I had very little idea, but, for one thing, I thought I would try to find Rogers and ask his advice. I had read many books about boys who had gone to London without a penny in their pockets and made immense fortunes, from Dick Whittington downwards, and I saw every reason to believe that, in some wonderful way, I should be equally successful. At all events, I would go, I would put some clothing into a bundle, and then I would await a favorable opportunity and take my departure, for at the worst it seemed certain I should be safe from pursuit. Mr. and Mrs. Turton would be thankful enough to get me off their hands, although Augustus might miss me as his but, the hours passed very slowly in the bedroom, and, having breakfasted on bread and water, I began presently to feel more and more hungry, I will not clean Augustus's boots, I repeated at intervals, and I tightened the strap behind my waistcoat, but, as the long afternoon began to wear away, and my hunger still increased, I sang to a different tune, what did it matter whether I cleaned the boots or not? I asked myself, especially if I could succeed in finding Augustus alone in the garden for a few quiet minutes before I left the school. Anyhow, it would be the first and the last time. So, just after the clock struck seven, I opened my door, went down to the hall, and thence to the kitchen, and knocked at the door. Cook, I said, where do you keep the boot brushes? In the coal cellar. Master Everard, She answered. I would have done them with pleasure. Only Mrs. Turton forbid me. I went into the coal cellar, took the brush and blacked the boots, and, oddly enough, I did not cease until I had made them shine far more brightly than Augustus's boots had ever shone before. Then I took them in my right hand and carried them upstairs, knocked at the door of Mr. Turton's study, and was told to enter. I have brought the boots. I said, "Ah," answered Mr. Turton, I am glad you have come to a less unreasonable state of mind, you can go to the kitchen and ask cook for some food, continued on page 34, the friendly light, wildly the wind doth rage, loudly the waters roar, and anxious are the hearts of those that wait upon the shore, till through the darkness of the night the lighthouse sends its friendly light, warning and guiding light, it shines across the bay, and helps the sailor steer his course till safely on the way, the harbor gained and home once more. He greets his loved ones on the shore. CDB illustration, 1. Waterbug's lancet much magnified, 2. Waterbug, 3. Sting of bee and poison dart both much magnified. Insect ways and means, eye stings and lancets, bees and spiders, earwigs, beetles and snails, dragonflies, grasshoppers, and butterflies are familiar enough to us all, Yet how many realize how fearfully and wonderfully they are made? What a marvelously complex weapon is the skin of the bee? What a wonderful rasp the snail possesses? How many can tell how an insect smells? And where its organs of taste and hearing lie? Since these are questions which young people often ask again and again, some of them will be answered in the course of these articles. To explain such matters clearly is a very difficult task. But with the aid of drawings, specially made for this purpose, The main facts at least should be easy to grasp. Most of us agree to treat the bee respectfully, having a wholesome dread of the vengeance he is likely to inflict on those who offend him. But how does a bee sting? And what is the sting like? To take the last question first, the sting of the bee is really an extremely cunningly devised weapon, so complex that only the bare outlines of its structure can possibly be described clearly. If you turn to the illustration of the bee sting, you will notice, in the right hand figure, at the upper end, three pointed projections or processes marked, the two outer ones ss we may neglect, for they are only protecting sheaths, that in the middle is is the sting proper, this consists of two parts, one a strong gouge like portion, and two a pair of darts of marvelous delicacy, these darts we cannot see in position because they lie on the other side of the gouge like piece, but to the left you will notice a long sword like blade, drawn separately, with a curiously crooked handle and a sharp barbed point. This is one of the pair of darts. Those who have had the misfortune to be stung may be interested to know that this painful wound was inflicted thus, when the bee alighted on you. He first thrust through the skin this hard, pointed gouge, then one of the darts was pushed down, then the other, a little further, then the gouge penetrated still deeper, and the opposite dart deeper still, and so on. First one dart, then the other, Going deeper and deeper, the gouge following, as they penetrated, little drops of poison oozed out from the barbs of the dart, and this caused the pain and inflammation. This poison is made in what is called the poison gland, the long, slender, coil tube P in the picture. As the poison is made, it is stored in the big bag marked P at the back of the sting, and when this is working, the poison is forced down between the gouge and the darts, to find its way out at the barbs into the flesh. But this sting is not only used for the purpose of giving pain. The bee long ago discovered the fact that food, if it is to be preserved for any length of time, requires to be specially dealt with. Accordingly the honey which is destined to be kept is preserved from fermentation by the addition of a drop of formic acid deposited by the sting. Only the workers and the queen bees of the hive have stings, the males are stingless. In stinging it often happens that the barbed darts are thrust so far into the wound that they cannot be withdrawn. As a result, the whole apparatus is left behind, and the bee pays the penalty with its life. But whilst some insects, such as the bees, inject poison by means of a sting, others affect the same end by peculiar modifications of the mouth parts. The nap is a case in point, the water bug, common in our ponds and ditches, is another, strangely enough. The mechanism adopted is precisely similar in character, though the parts of which this mechanism is made up are of a totally different kind. Here, the mouth parts are specially modified, so as to form a supporting and piercing weapon, like the gouge-like piercing weapon of the bee, with delicate pointed and barbed weapons corresponding to the barbs of the bee skin. This piercing organ may be used for sapping the tissue of plants, or, as in the case of mats and fleas, They may be employed for the purpose of absorbing the blood of animals. In the latter case, after the surface of the skin is pierced, a poison is forced down into the wound. For the purpose, it is thought, of making the blood more fluid. But this poison is of a highly irritant nature, and leaves a very painful feeling, accompanied by more or less inflammation of the parts attacked. The water boatman, which almost everyone must have seen swimming back downwards in ponds, can inflict a very painful wound in this manner. The illustration shows the lancet of Nepa, The water bug, the piercing organ just described is the spear-shaped piece bounded on either side by two long filaments. W.P.P.Y.C.R.A.F.T. F.Z.S.A.L.S. Puzzlers for Wise Heads. 1. Geographical Acrostic. An American republic, having a hot climate on the coastline, but cooler inland. it is a rich and fertile country, where many valuable trees grow. Useful plants and fruits are produced in great abundance, and there are many wild animals, and birds of brilliant plumage. Numerous shallow rivers water the land, and gold, silver, iron, copper, and other metals are to be found there. One, a mountain near Athens, famous in old times for honey and marble. Two, a decayed seaport in Italy, with a castle which gave the title to a celebrated story. Three, a Cornish fishing village, much frequented by artists. 4. A village in Ireland, where a notorious fair was formerly held. 5. A small country or district on the eastern side of an African lake, its chief town is the terminus of a great caravan route. 6. A city of Virginia, USA built on a river of the same name. 7. A tea-growing district of British India, abounding in wild animals. 8. The most important seaport of central China. C.J.B. 2. O G R A T H A word of eight lepers, naming the hero of a noted poem. One, six, five, four, a game, also the toy with which the game is played. Two, seven, three, four, a wild berry. Three, one, three, six, a covering for the head. Four, four, seven, two, six, a tiny particle. Five, six, seven, five, four, to melt, dissolve, or become fluid. Six, 7, 8, 1, 3. A peculiar kind of fence. 7, 4, 1, 3, 6. An interrogation. 8, 4, 2, 6. Mental faculty. CJB answers on page 58. The mysterious chest. It is hard lines, it should rain the first day of the holidays, said George, somewhat gloomily, as he looked out at the heavy downpour, which was fast changing the tennis lawn into a miniature lake no chance of a game, sighed Pelham, thinking of the swamp cricket field, if you two lads want an indoor job, I have one for you, and one that has baffled me, said Mr. Carteret, looking up from his paper, what is it, father, asked Pelham, the eldest boy, a lot of things were sent here from Vale Place last month, and amongst them an oak chest, which I cannot unlock, try as I may, so I waited for you to as I know you are more handy with your fingers than I am, answered his father, we will soon tackle it, said Pelham, confidently, father, here broken George, I thought you were to have Vale place when old Mr. Pelham died, so did I said Mr. Carteret shortly, but it is left to someone else, is it not, went on George, anxious to understand the matter, which had greatly puzzled both boys for some weeks, yes, I meant to tell you about it when you came home, said their father. It was no good writing bad news, but you must know it sooner or later, you know, he continued, that my father and Mr. Pelham were brother officers in India, and when both my parents were swept away in one week by cholera, Mr. Pelham brought me home to Vale Place, where I was brought up as his son and heir, but after his death, a few months ago, no will could be found, though he had repeatedly told me that he had made one leaving Vale Place to me and my children. Then who has Vale Place now? asked George. As his father paused a minute, it passed to the heir, said Mr. Carteret. He is a distant cousin, who cares nothing about the property, and means to sell it for building land. What a shame, said Pelham, hotly. Well, I do not know that there is any shame about it, for this cousin has never lived there, and it has none of the old associations for him that make me regret its loss so deeply. He seems a very considerate man in some ways, and begged to be allowed to send me all the old furniture which stood in my room at Vale Place, thinking I should value it, as indeed I do. So that is how the old chest came to me. And here are the keys. See what you can do with them. Come on, George, said Pelham. Where is the chest? Father, upstairs in the attic. You will want a candle. It is in a dark corner, was the answer. I am coming too, announced Nanny. I want to see what is in the chest, I have fed my birds, and I may not stay out in the rain, little girls should not be inquisitive, said George, who dearly loved to tease his sister, you may see more than you want, oh, George, what, said Nanny, in rather a shaky voice, what do you think is in the chest, you will see by and by, and remember I have warned you, said George, mysteriously, Nanny, though alarmed bravely stood her ground and watched the two boys as they tried every key on the bunch, then, finding that none fitted, they used a screwdriver, and at last word.